0: Doing the question and answers as we've been doing for, uh, believe it or not, it's been a little bit uh, over a year. And this has been very enlightening to see exactly what's on your mind, what the things are that you have uh, concerns or questions about. And so we're going to continue to, to uh, do that as long as you submit those. Most of the time you send those through email and we appreciate that. You send it through the church's email. You, if you want to do it anonymously, remember, write with your other hand. And then uh, place it in either the uh, secretary's on her desk, you know, or you can put it in one of our boxes. So uh, keep that uh, for in the back of your mind, and, and it will be uh, Hiram next month, and we'll continue to do this as long as there's questions. And if we hit a month and there's no questions, then you'll, you'll know uh, why we didn't do that. Um, some questions that are asked are questions that are asked with regard to a desire to know more information. Sometimes there are questions that are asked that are asked to try to clear up some kind of question, misunderstanding, or alleged contradiction, and some are, it seems to me, by the asking of them, very practical in their nature as regards maybe something we're going through in our personal lives. Uh, Let me say something about a question that was submitted some time back. Uh, There are going to be questions from time to time that I don't want to answer here, Uh, for various reasons don't read any more into that than I mean but someone asked a question with regard uh, to uh, tattoos and piercings so if whoever that is if you would like to ask to talk to me one-on-one I would like to speak with you with regard to that we're not going to deal with it here uh, in the open forum of questions so let's look at the first question that was asked there's actually a series of them that deal with deacons With regard to deacons, there was a question that was asked, is this a title, a job description, or both? Uh, When we hear about deacons and read about them, what does the New Testament inform us about that? Well, I want to say up front that I believe that the answer to that is that there is a special class of individuals who were selected for office, by that I mean official work, that are called deacons in the New Testament. And there are at least three reasons why we come to this conclusion. The first reason why is that there is a list of individuals that are identified in this way in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that find themselves alongside of other special groups of people. A second reason why I believe that there is a special class or designation of deacons in the New Testament is because of something that Paul wrote at the beginning of his epistle to the Philippians, in Philippians 1 and verse 1, where he addresses this letter to the church it's at Philippi with the elders and the deacons. A third reason why I believe that this signifies a special group of people is That there are a list of qualifications that is not required of all Christians in that list in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 through 13 which speaks to a technical sense in which that word is used. Maybe you think, well, Neil, that word deacons is a very special word. But the word deacon is actually what we call a transliteration. All that means is, is a word in its original language is carried over into another language and basically is kind of adapted to that language. So you take the uh, original word, deaconos and you just kind of make it an anglicized word, deacon. But that word diakonos, more generally, means servant. So there are many times in the New Testament where the word diakonos simply means servant. And it signifies the broad sense of the fact that we as Christians are to be serving. So you'll even find Jesus referring to himself as a diakonos. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 when he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so it seems that there was a class of individuals who were selected by the church in order to do specified works in the church that carried the title of deacon, not in the sense that Jesus condemns the having of titles in Matthew twenty-three eight through ten, but to signify that that work existed. Now, this is just something to help us; it doesn't determine anything by itself. But in very very early church history, outside of the New Testament, we find uh, attesting to the the fact of there being deacons in the church. There is a kind of a, a class commentary in the early second century known as the Didache. And the Didache says that we are to elect individuals as overseers and deacons who are worthy of the Lord. Alright, so you have that uh, indication that they already recognize this. And then there was a man by the name of Polycarp who's known to us both for losing his life uh, for the cause of Christ but also being converted to Christ by the Apostle John. So very early in uh, history after the New Testament. And he says that the church is to submit to presbyters, that is elders, and deacons in the Lord. And so they existed, and they did that work. They had responsibilities to fulfill. All right, so that leads us to a second question that was asked alongside of this, and that is, what about those men in Acts chapter 6? Were those deacons? Uh, And the the reason why I believe that, that that's asked is because there are men who are appointed To do a special work. In fact, um, as we uh, look at that word deaconia, diakonos, serve and servant, it's used several times in Acts chapter 6. It's used once each in the first four verses of Acts chapter 6. Not only that, but you'll also notice that there was a special formal service in which they were uh, set aside for that task. And they did work that we might say is deacon kind of work. But what we've got to be very careful about is and say maybe there's some good examples here. There's some principles that can help men who would serve as deacons. But we've got to notice that the inspired Luke did not use that term. He doesn't call them deacons and so we can't be dogmatic about that. What they are is assistants. That word diakonos is often used to speak of one who is an assistant to the apostles specifically. It's used this way in Colossians 1 and verse 7 to speak uh, of uh, Epaphras. It's used that way to speak of Tychicus in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7. And it's used that way to speak of Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 2. They were assistants to the apostles, but they were not deacons. All right, that leads to a third question that was asked in relationship to this. And that is, can you have individuals to serve over ministry areas in a congregation where you also have deacons. In other words, if you have appointed men to be deacons, is it legitimate and right to have other men who are over specific ministries in the congregation? And the answer to that is absolutely. Uh, For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, uh, Timothy was given the ministry of preaching and he's not even married. If in Acts chapter 6 we go with what the text says, here are apparently individuals who the apostles put over a specific work who are not overtly called deacons. So what does that? how does that have relevance to us at Lehman? It does, doesn't it? In most every congregation I've ever been associated with. There are individuals who are over ministry areas in a church that are not deacons, are not necessarily qualified to be deacons, but can legitimately serve in ministry in an organized way because of the example of Timothy and those individuals in Acts chapter 6. It may be over a program like lads to leaders or it may be to serve as the treasurer or as we have things organized, it may be to to participate in our vision groups. Um, and that we do this with biblical precedents. All right, another question that's asked with regard to deacons is, is the, uh, the office or work of a deacon a stepping stone to being an elder? Well, I think what we need to be careful to, is to, to, to conclude something the Bible doesn't conclude. And nowhere does the Bible tell us that one has to serve as a deacon in order to be an elder. And so we would be able to choose in our judgment to do whatever we deem is the wisest. Now, there is some legitimacy to the idea, there's some wisdom perhaps, in having someone first serve as a deacon before serving as an elder. That doesn't mean it has to be that way, but here's what the Apostle Paul says about it in First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13, that one can demonstrate uh, a reliability, a dependability in that work that gives them a great standing or high standing and good reputation in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. They can demonstrate themselves to be trustworthy, one who works hard and who can be counted on uh, through being given a specific work as a deacon. Those qualifications are spiritual qualifications and speak to responsibility. And so there's some wisdom in that. Verse 10 uh, of First Timothy chapter 3 would, would say that as well, but it's not essential in order for that to be the case, for one to be an elder. Now, having said all that, that may raise some additional questions that you have about deacons, elders, or anything along those lines in church leadership. Completely different type of question. One was asked with regard to honoring your father and your mother. Now, this particular person had a two-part question, but let's deal with that first part. What does it mean to honor your father and your mother? And for the Christian... That leads us to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Children, obey your uh, parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, uh, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, that you may live long upon the earth. All right, so what is the Apostle Paul talking about, and especially Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3? When we become adults, are we to continue to honor our father and our mother, and what does that mean? Well, it's obvious that Paul is quoting the Ten Commandments. He is specifically citing Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 16. And he points out that this is the first commandment in the Ten Commandments that not only is stated, but also has a promise along with it. And the promise is that if you do this, if you honor your father and your mother, then uh, you'll do well and you'll live long upon the earth. Well, when we try to define that word honor... It means to have great respect for. It means to revere. But as we examine it more closely, it means more than just even that. It also carries with it the idea of providing financial support, if financial support is a need, as a sign of the deep respect that we have for our parents. And so, to put it together, we are to deeply respect, we are to revere, we are to to uh, provide financial help if it's needed in the case of our adult parents when we become adults. Now, we know that this is at least part of what's in mind because of how Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. In verse 4 through 6, Jesus is talking about how they invalidate the Word of God by their traditions. They take what God's Word has to say, the law, and then they take the Talmud, their own commentaries on the law, and they try to get around what the law says in order to do what they want to do. And here's what they did with honor your father and your mother. They say, look, this money... Corbin, as it's called in some translations, that we should set aside to honor you. We've given that to God. And so we can't fulfill this uh, a command to honor you in that way. By the way, it's also used that way in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3 in talking about honoring widows who are widows indeed. This is about who does the church support financially. Okay, so you put it all that together. To honor our parents means that we give them the great due respect that they have as those who have brought us into this world. And if they have further need, we supply that. Now here's the second part of the question, and this may be a question that you have. How do you honor your father and your mother if they are horrible to you and to your children? Unfortunately, we live in a dysfunctional world and how many situations are there where one's parents are either hostile or they're manipulative or they're harmful or they're destructive in some way toward us? Now, here's a principle that you can't miss in all of this. We have got to protect our family. We've got to protect our children from abuse of any kind. So don't miss that. But we've also got to balance that with wisdom in what our Lord tells us is our responsibility to our parents. That's where I believe passages like Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 through 48 come to play. If we're talking about them trying to take advantage of us in some way, we need to remember Jesus' word about turning the other cheek, about if we're sued and our shirt is taken, give him our coat as well. If we're compelled, if we're asked to go one mile, we go the second mile. And through this, we're demonstrating this higher law that we're to love not only our neighbors, but our enemies that we are going to uh, imitate our Heavenly Father who sends His Son on the evil and the good and causes His rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. We're not just going to love those that love us. We're going to be better than the tax collector and the Gentile. We're going to be like our perfect Heavenly Father, complete. Now that's going to be challenging at times. But the Apostle Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21, that when... We want to demonstrate Christ to people who are acting unchrist like The bottom line rule is, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so we're going to demonstrate a higher law, even with parents who are hard to get along with. Or maybe it's worse than that. Remember, we're going to protect our families. Alright, a third question, completely different, has to do with what goes on in Joshua chapter 9. And that is the Gibeonites. <clears throat> the question was that was asked is, why was it uh, okay, or why does God sanction the Israelites keeping the covenant that they made with the Gibeonites, but they could disregard God's command to... And not to annihilate or to destroy the inhabitants of the land. So let me give a little background to what happens in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites happen to be natives of the land of Canaan. And there's this roaming nomadic group of invaders known as the Israelites. And they have come into their land and they're being very successful on the battlefield. They have a God who is fighting for them and so they can't stand up in the battle. And so they're concerned. And so the Gibeonites come up with this very elaborate plan that they're going to pretend. And they have all the ways that they do that. They're going to pretend to be from a a long distant country. And they're going to come in and they're going to trick the Israelites into going into a covenant with them. It takes about three days and the Israelites find out that they've been tricked, they've been deceived. But they enter into a covenant with them. Now, did they sin? Yes, they sinned. Their sin was that they did not look into this and try to get the answer. Joshua had the high priest along with him. He could have had him consult the Urim and the Thummim, in other words, to get God's uh, opinion, his judgment. And then they would have known that these Gibeonites were deceiving them. That's what they should have done. But they made that covenant in good faith, thinking they were from a long way off and they just wanted to be in a treaty with the Israelites. Now, when in Joshua chapter 9 and verse 18, they entered into a covenant, they they declared an oath, they gave that covenant in the name of the Lord. And once they did that, then two wrongs could not make a right. Listen, the Bible was very clear about what one does or how serious it is when one makes an oath to God. Just read Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. If you make an oath to God, and in the name of the Lord, you must fulfill it. Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2 says the same thing. And so had they known that the Gibeonites were local, then they would have never entered into that treaty. They would have done what God said. They would have destroyed them. But when they entered into it in good faith, There was was nothing else they could do. They were put between a rock and a hard place. The question was asked, what about in those places in the Old Testament where they entered into unlawful marriages with foreign wives? That's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Well, we, we understand that the law of Moses was much more lax because of the hardness of their heart with the marriage covenant. But there were at least two occasions where God sent His leaders in among the people and said, I want you to make an oath in the name of the Lord to put away these marriages. Look at Ezra ten and verse three, and Nehemiah thirteen and verse twenty seven, and so the fact that they entered into those marriages was something they shouldn't have done, and they were to uh, get out of those. And it's not a parallel to what we see in Joshua chapter nine. Good. That's a great point. Um, the idea is that the how serious was this Saul? Broke that covenant with the Gibeonites and he paid for it with seven of his sons. Uh, God doesn't play when it comes to vows. Great point. Alright, last question has to do with, uh, and I, I like the way this was put, is one sin as bad as another sin? Are all sins equal in the eyes of God? And I would answer that in two ways. First of all, I would answer that by saying that there is a difference in committing a sin and practicing sin. Um, all of us are going to be committers of sin. The Bible makes that point in, in the Old and the New Testament in every type of literature. From Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20 to Romans 3, verse 10 and 23 to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, repeatedly the idea is we're going to struggle with sin. John makes that point, doesn't he? In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 where he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. You're going to sin all your life. That's not a license to serve, it's a reality. Even the great Apostle Paul spoke of his struggle in Romans seven fifteen to 25. That's different from practicing sin. 1 John 3, 9 and 10 tells us the big difference that there is between the one and the other. Now, with that being in mind, if we serve any sin, even a sin that we think is benign, if we fall into the habit and the practice without a penitent heart, if it's something even like lying or cursing or some or lust or bitterness, if we persist in that and we don't repent of that, then we're not walking in the light, we're walking as a matter of course in darkness. So there's a difference between a committing and a practicing of sin. But here's the other part. Not every sin has equal consequence, does it? There are some sins that hurt us more than other sins hurt us. There are some sins that hurt us more financially, psychologically, um, emotionally, socially. And and so you might compare uh, a sin of being addicted uh, and serving that addiction to pornography or the the use of illegal drugs versus impatience uh, or gossip. Now they can both be ultimately equally harmful, but there's a different impact that it has on us. There's a different set of consequences in some sins that we commit uh, in uh, against society and to others than others are. Wouldn't you agree that there's a difference in the impact potentially of going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit versus getting drunk, driving drunk, and killing someone? Or a difference that's made between hating somebody in your heart and committing murder against that person in reality, Matthew 5:21 and 22? And so there are some sins that have a greater impact on society and others than other things that we would do. And then there are some sins that we commit that can have a greater harmful impact on the cause of Christ and the church than others. If a brother or sister well known to be a member of the church is indicted publicly for embezzlement, or for is charged with child molestation. That's going to do a lot more harm than one who is lying or gossiping with a coworker uh, compared to the other. Now, the one that asked this question kind of summarized it this way: How can we how can we differentiate on that? And, and the concern of the questioner was, what is John talking about in First John five sixteen and seventeen when he talks about there being a sin unto death and a sin that's not unto death? I think John is dealing categorically. He is talking about uh, there is a category of sin where one is impenitent. One is hardened in that. Their conscience is seared. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2. They have gotten to such a point. Peter says they cannot cease from sin. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14. And no matter what's done to plead with them, they are not going to turn away from that. We can pray for them all that we want to. But as they persist in that mindset, that's not going to change a thing. They are they're at that moment in that condition they are committing a sin unto death now i don't think that john's prohibiting us from praying for them but don't expect that our prayers apart from their repentance is going to make any difference they've got to be willing to change the sin not unto death is one that one is open to and is willing to repent of but the beautiful thing is that all sin can be renounced can be turned away from we don't have to serve it anymore we can change our masters from sin to the saviour We're going to offer this invitation song uh, that will be sung in just a moment. As a way to encourage you, there's a song that says, If you're tired of the load of your sin, let Jesus come into your heart. Well, how do you do that? There's a way that's not spoken of in the Bible and the way that there is. The way that folks let Jesus come into their heart in the New Testament was they heard the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. It led them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. It led them to repent of their sins, to be baptized into Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. It led them to confess their faith in Christ, Romans 10 and verse 10. And it allowed them or caused them to be united with Christ in baptism, Romans 6, 3 and 4. That's the way you can let Jesus into your heart. If you're a child of God who has been caught up in some sin for which you need to repent, then we would love to help you. If this is your invitation, won't you come? As we stand and sing this song.